facing our fears, turning what scares us into our greatest gift, and women in AIDS coming right up on Star Style. Be the star you are with your personal growth success coach, Cynthia Bryan. Pull up a chair and turn up the volume. Hey, how you doing? Got a quick question. Yeah? Who was Rudolf Nureyev? Rudy Nureyev. Rudy. Okay, I know this one. Good. Uh, uh, wasn't he that... G- Nureyev? Nureyev. 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 Uh, wasn't he a defenseman for the Maple Leafs? Sure about that? Could have been a goalie. Yeah. Hey, hi. How you doing? Uh, who was Louis Armstrong? That's easy. He was the first guy on the moon. Really? You know... One small step for man. Sure, one giant leap for Louis. Hey, young lady. Uh-huh. Does the name Caravaggio mean anything to you? Wasn't he the guy that went out with that mob guy's sister until he got whacked? You know, no. Are your kids as well-rounded as they could be? Kids who participate in the arts do better in school and in life. To learn more about the value of arts education, visit americansforthearts.org. Because all kids should get to appreciate Nureyev's dance, Armstrong's horn, and Caravaggio's brush. Art. Ask for more. A public service message brought to you by Americans for the Arts and the Ad Council. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome to Radio's Finest Hour of Power, Star Style, Be the Star You Are, a program of positive book talk with authors who help you excel and experience life. My name is Cynthia Bryan. I'm delighted to be your personal growth success expert right here on the airwaves with you every week. So get ready to pump your energy, love, learn, laugh, listen, and live your dreams by reading more books and tuning in to positive media. We are a show about following your heart, doing what you love, and we bubble with enthusiasm, inspiration, motivation, information. It is champagne for your spirit. The Miracle Moment for today is brought to you by Star Style Productions, coaching you to be the star of your own life. For more information on getting a private coaching session, go to www.star-style.com or you can call 925-377-STAR, which is 925-377-7827. And this is by Mahatma Gandhi, who was an Indian nationalist leader, 1869-1948. Man often becomes what he believes himself to be. If I keep on saying to myself that I cannot do something, it's possible that I may end up by really becoming incapable of doing it. On the contrary, if I have the belief that I can do it, I shall surely acquire the capacity to do it, even if I may not have it at the beginning. In other words, what you think about and talk about comes about, and whether you think you can or think you can't, you are right. Well, the world's premier expert on Queen Elizabeth I, Susan Ronald, starts off our show with her newest book, The Pirate Queen. It's all about Queen Elizabeth, her pirate adventures, and the dawn of the empire. And it's the first book to de-emphasize the monarch's love affairs, and it depicts her as one of history's most astute financial wizards and history's really ultimate female icon. That's coming right up here in segment one. In segment two, psychologist and human 
humorist Tom Rutledge discusses his book, Embracing Fear, as he imparts the wisdom that we may not have any choice about whether fear exists, but we really have to choose how we respond to our fears, whether they're small, medium, or huge. The choices we make or the choices that we uh, fail to make are really what define us. And in our T for Two, a mother-daughter brew, Heather Brittany, our women's study major, leads an enlightening discussion on the plight of women with AIDS. Our purpose, as always, is to provide this radio show to communicate to you that you already possess everything you need to be the writer, the producer, the star of your own life. We have three rules, smile, have fun, and be wild and crazy. And, of course, we want you to read good books and some that you may not have heard of. As an author, I have four bestsellers, Chicken Soup for the Gardener's Soul, Be the Star You Are, Business of Show Business, and Miracle Moments. Proceeds benefit the charity that brings you this radio show. Go to BeTheStarYouAre.org. Our motto is to be a leader, you must be a reader. So sit back and enjoy the show. Well, talking about leaders, we're going to be talking about one of the world's most profound leaders right now. After moving from New York to England with her family almost 20 years ago, Susan Ronald and her husband went into the corporate finance uh, consultancy business. And Susan specialized in the hotel and tourism sector. Then she started consulting for five British government departments, the National Trust, and she had hundreds of projects under development. She's the author of children's books as well as the book about the famous diamonds, the Sansi Blunt Diamond. But the book that we're talking about today is The Pirate Queen, the Queen Elizabeth I, her pirate adventurers, and the dawn of the empire. She digs up every fact surrounding the reign of Elizabeth I. She is the ultimate historian on Elizabeth I, and I am so delighted to welcome her. Hello, Susan. Hello, Cynthia. Thank you for your compliments. Oh, this is an exciting book. This is definitely a historical book, and, and you know, we tend to think about history as being written in stone very often, and sometimes we think it's unchanging, it's fixed, it's immutable, but with your book of the Pirate Queen, we see Elizabeth I in a, like a continual dialogue between the past and the present, and much has been written about the quote-unquote virgin queen, but very little has been written about her financial strategies. She was truly a wizard, that, and you eliminate her shrewd business acumen in the Pirate Queen. So I would really like to talk about her endorsement of piracy, which I never really realized, um, even though she was called the Wicked Woman and all of that. <laughs> and uh, Because she, what she was trying to do is save England, and she actually created the British Empire. Exactly. I, I think that what really uh, struck me when I was starting research on this is the resonance between the Elizabethan times and today. Everybody will be saying, what? You know, we no, don't no, no, I am with you because that is, I want to talk about that too. Let's talk. Yes, well, essentially what had happened was England was surrounded by enemies all over. Uh, the Pope was using Ireland as a launching pad to invade England. Philip II of Spain had been King of England. He was fighting a war in the Low Countries, today known as the Netherlands. And Catherine de Medici was ruling France, which was undergoing a lot of civil wars. Mary, Queen of Scots, was Queen of France as well as the Queen of Scotland, and essentially within the first three years of Elizabeth's reign, she had to fight two very serious wars um, just to secure her realm. England had been entirely cut off in terms of overseas trade, and, and actually England only had one export, which was cloth or wool, 
Um, uh, we'd also lost Calais, which was the main export market for this. So you can imagine what would happen in the United States if suddenly there was no export market. No, absolutely. And, you know, I think what we fail to realize, because uh, growing up with the history that we study, we always think about how strong Britain was. Obviously, the American Revolution was fought against uh, Britain so that we get our freedom. And, and Britain literally ruled the world, very similar to America's supremacy today, but how quickly it can disappear. Well, exactly. And I, I think that the, the most interesting uh, line that I saw was uh, somebody was describing uh, William Shakespeare's thoughts at the, at the time in the 1580s. And he made one sentence that I think strikes home with us today. All Elizabethans felt that they lived in uh, apocalyptic times. I think we feel very much the same. The threat of, of invasion was very real. Nobody knew who the enemy was. And it was very, very difficult to try and, and get any sort of sense of security and feel a good way forward in your life. Well, when she took the throne, first of all, she was the daughter of Anne Boleyn and uh, Henry VIII. So it was a traumatic childhood, having seen your mother, or not actually maybe not witnessed it, but knowing <laughs> that your father killed your mother. Well, yes. I mean, the, the, that, everybody can relate to that, and obviously the fact that her mother was beheaded uh, on some pretty badly trumped-up charges was one story. But her first cousin was Catherine Howard, and Catherine Howard was uh, Henry's fifth wife, and Elizabeth actually saw Catherine Howard being dragged from the palace by her hair to go to the tower and eventually be beheaded. And she was only about nine when she witnessed that, wasn't she? That's right, and she held Robert Dudley's hand and she said, I shall never marry. Mm-hmm. And so this, and that was really what set her apart because Spain was ruling the world in those days. Yes. Now, I mean, today we don't think of Spain as being a, a, a world power, but it, it definitely held the high seas and Portugal was there as well. But England definitely had nothing going on for it. There, there was nothing. No, nothing at all. <laughs> I mean, it really, it was, it was, it was poor. Nothing was happening. And, uh, when we think of pirates, you know, I never thought of, like, um, Sir Francis Bacon as being a pirate or Hawkins. I, I didn't, you know, you thought of them as adventurers, explorers. Well, yes. I mean, the, the only thing that set him apart from um, your run-of-the-mill pirate who was not endorsed by the government was most of them traveled with the full knowledge uh, and also investment from the Privy Council, uh, which were Elizabeth's top counselors, as well as the Queen herself. When Hawkins started on his slaving voyages, uh, Elizabeth did two things. She made him sign an agreement effectively that he would not separate families. He would not take uh, black people from Africa against their will or hurt them in any way which was the first thing that she was able to be delusional about. Um, and the second thing was, of course, she gave him her ships. So she was a primary investor and became a primary investor in, in what they called the joint stock companies in virtually every single voyage that sailed out of England. And they, what became the prominent thing that you bring out in your book is that one of the ways that they became so high and mighty on the seas is by capturing the other ships oh, that yeah. were out there and stealing the slaves that had already been stolen from Africa. Well, that's, that, that was Hawkins' specialty. He, he would, as he put it, harvest slaves from the Portuguese and then um, bring them on board English ships. Uh, when it came time for Drake, he was great at stealing maps 
Um, and actually, a lot of those maps are today at the uh, Maritime Museum in Greenwich in England. Uh, I think I have a few of them in my book as well. You, you do, and you've also you have portrayed um, Drake um, as a very fair. You know that he wanted to treat the people fairly. Yes. As opposed to uh, the other pirate, whose name I'm blanking on, when they uh, stormed the island in Ireland, yes. where the Scottish had taken. Um, yes, that was refuge. the first. That was Walter that Devereux, was... who was the first Earl of Essex. He was the father of uh, Robert Devereux, who people may remember was Elizabeth's last favorite, um, whose head ended up on the block as well. But actually, in that particular incident that you're talking about at Rathlin Island. Uh, Drake had been um, seconded to go to be his admiral at sea, and it was Drake's horrible duty to keep people from escaping this island. But Drake was, uh, even by 21st century standards, uh, incredibly tolerant and understanding and wanted to see how other people lived and respected their differences. So, for example, when he went to, visit, to invade um, the Caribbean in 1585 and Elizabeth wanted to give him an army to take with him, he said, no, no, don't worry, I will free the slaves. And he freed 10,000 slaves. And he did. And he actually befriended many of them who actually helped him on the rest of his, um, his, his captures and his voyages, and it, they really were an asset to him. Oh, absolutely. I, I think without his friend Diego, um, there's every possibility he would not have been as successful. And Diego ha- had been an escaped Spanish slave, and he actually rounded up uh, tens of thousands of other slaves for Drake. Because they were living, they were all living in the bayous and in the country, and he was able to find them and and tell them to work with Drake. Exactly, and um, it's a fabulous success story, and I'm just shocked nobody's ever told that part before. That comes straight from Drake's own diaries after, or his account of those voyages after um, he had finished and retired. Well, you know, Susan, what strikes me that's very relevant today and that was relevant then, and you wonder, does history just keep repeating itself or are we as human beings ever going to learn? Mm. But the bloodshed, the warfare, the the, the things that were done in the name of God, you know, and Mm -hmm. my God, and the craziness that there was between the Protestants and the Catholics. Well, that's uh, unfortunately still going on today if you read into what the Pope had announced last week. Um, it, it's scary. Uh, it, it's really very scary. That's what I mean. Is that what happened then is still happening now? It, it and, is. And it, it is. just it mind it just boggles my mind that why can't we all get along? I mean, what is this big deal about whose religion is what? But you know, you make it very clear, and this is part of the stuff that I'd never really realized is how the Pope. Uh, everyone was ganging up against Elizabeth, but the Pope was very involved and was even planning assassinations. Yes, actually, he probably personally, when I say he, there were nine different popes during her reign, but um, certainly the the various popes plotted at least 14 of the 22 assassination attempts that Elizabeth um, had actually managed to get out of. So, uh, and when you think that he worked in, in concert with uh, Philip of Spain, as you say, he was the most powerful, Um, then also sometimes with the kings of France, it really made for um, some very touch-and-go situations throughout Elizabeth's reign. Yeah, yeah, it's it's scary. And what's even scarier is that 
this story hasn't been told, even though there were ample files everywhere about it. And that's why I was so keen to tell it, especially now. You know, I just, I really just saw the parallels with what's going on today. And, you know, you, I couldn't help but think of America as a Spain. Oh, exactly. You know, I didn't think of it as England. I thought of it as Spain. Exactly. And I, and I think that the, the scary thing is, look what happened to Spain. Exactly. Because the world would have been Spanish had um, Elizabeth not jumped to the help of the Dutch, and then the Dutch Empire grew up next, and then after that came the British Empire. And, and frankly, if you look at how many countries speak Spanish as their first language today, you can understand how immense the Spanish Empire was. Um, and, and now that there's so many countries that speak English as a first language, you can understand basically, aha, they would have all spoken Spanish. That, that's right. And I think also what's very fascinating there is that she was able to play one against the other. That was what I was amazed, is that she was such a politician or such a tactician that, you know, um, that Philip would think she was going to do one thing, and then she was really negotiating with somebody else, and all the time she's getting her pirates ready, and of course she's telling them she doesn't want anybody hurt or blah, 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 but she had to have known that there was going to be some <laughs> death tolls, but she was trying to save herself, stay on the throne, as well as create the, a dominance for the United Kingdom. Yes, uh, what she really wanted to do was to create a security for the realm. Um, one of the questions that I had from my readers recently was, but wasn't she an imperialist? And I said, well, actually, no. What she wanted to do was create overseas trade, and because of the Portuguese and Spanish empires, she could only look to the north, which was the reason why they started to look for the Northwest Passage, only after the Northeast Passage had failed because Ivan the Terrible, who was in charge of Russia at the time, um, went off his rocker. So, um, you know, there was always something blocking her way. And even with her adventurers, she had to play one off against the other all the time. Well, and with her suitors, every, um, every king, every lead of every country was trying to marry her off so that she would be controlled. And she, I'm sure going back to her time in the tower, was absolutely adamant that she was not going to be married off. She was going to stay in control of the country and see what she could do to make it successful. Well, if if you think about it as well, I mean, Philip II also saved her when she was in the tower because even though he was married to uh, her sister Mary, Mary Tudor, but the next person in line for the throne beside Elizabeth was Mary, Queen of Scots, who also was next in line for the fr in the throne for France. So he really couldn't afford to have Mary, Queen of Scots, be, become king of, uh, sorry, Queen of England as well. Um, so it's quite funny to see how uh, allegiances moved and ebbed and flowed with the tides. Well, anyway, it's just a fascinating, fascinating research book, and it's truly a historical book. I love all all the the very in-depth research you did and all the footnotes and the indexes and the glossary. And I mean, this is something that could really help people understand not only the world in the 16th century, but our world today. And if we can look at history and not be doomed to repeat it, we may want to take a look at the Pirate Queen 
Queen Elizabeth I, Her Pirate Adventures, and The Dawn of the Empire by Susan Ronald. It is really an in- incredible, in-depth look at these Elizabethan times. I'd like to give out your website, Susan, because uh, I want people to go there. Thank you. It's uh, SusanRonald.com. SusanRonald.com. That's R-O-N-A-L-D.com. Again, the name of the book, The Pirate Queen, Queen Elizabeth I, Her Pirate Adventures, and The Dawn of Empire. And there's so much we could have talked about, and I know you, you had said there's tons that you didn't even put in the book, so maybe that's a sequel. Well, thank you for joining us, Susan. Congratulations on writing such a tome of knowledge, and let's hope that we Americans can learn something from what has gone on in the past. Thank you very much, Cynthia. Thank you very much. The Pirate Queen, Queen Elizabeth I, her pirate adventures. Go to SusanRonald.com. You're listening to Cynthia Bryan on Star Style. Be the star you are. We're going to face our fears when we come back. Stay with us. I'm Mary Hart, and this is Empowering America. She was born in Newark, New Jersey in 1924. She was blessed with a beautiful voice, and by 19, young Sarah had entered and won an amateur hour contest at Harlem's famous Apollo Theater. A year later, singer Billy Eckstein invited her to join his new group, featuring the legendary Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, and Miles Davis. Sarah, now nicknamed Sassy, dazzled all with the amazing flexibility of her voice. At 20 years old, she cut her first record and was fast becoming a legend among her fellow musicians. She joined Mercury Records in 1954 and embarked on the most prolific years of her career. Over the next three decades, Sassy toured the world and cut more records, her last in 1987. Three years later, in 1990, Sarah Sassy Vaughn passed away, leaving a gaping hole in the world of music. Empowering America is sponsored by the Foundation of American Women in Radio and Television and is made possible by the generous support of AT&T, caring for the communities where we live and work. Listen, the world is talking. World Talk Radio. You are showcases incredible authors and experts who enhance and inspire your life. Be the Star You Are is a 501c3 charity dedicated to empowering women, families, and youth at risk through improved literacy and positive messages like this radio show. Please visit BeTheStarYouAre.org, get involved, make a donation, and thanks for supporting literacy and positive programming. Well, Tom Rutledge has been a psychotherapist for over 25 years. He's also a recovering alcoholic and has been treated for clinical depression. What he has learned more by having these obstacles or challenges in his life, he says that it has far exceeded what he learned in school. These struggles have helped his professional training, and he has a groundbreaking book called Embracing Fear, which shows us the power that fear holds over us and how each of us must choose to either let our fear control us or we become the master of our fear and let fear teach us. Welcome, Tom, to Star Style. Be the star you are. Thank you, Cynthia. Well, I really love your book, Embracing Fear, How to Turn What Scares Us into Our Greatest Gift. And I'm sure many people, when you talk to them, will say, how can fear uh, uh, be a gift to us? 
But you have created four steps to overcoming fear, and what I honor about you is you have an approach that involves humor as a teacher. So, because, you know, obviously when we laugh, we can't be crying, and we can't be sad, you know, when we have a smile on our face. So before we talk about the principles uh, in embracing fear, could you describe a little bit about how humor has played a huge part in the ability to face your fears and how you work with people? Well, I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think I would be alive today without, without a sense of humor. I, I mean, it's certainly been a saving grace for me all of my life and uh, and uh, I come from uh, you know I'm, I'm fortunate enough to come from a funny family and uh, you know we we always uh, of all the dysfunctional things I may have learned about my family as I've been in therapy through the years I certainly know that one of the one of the healing aspects of it was was humor so one of the things I've learned is is and and really try to dem- more more demonstrate than didactically teach my clients is that that a sense of humor is not uh, is is not the opposite of taking things seriously I have a little sign in my my uh, wall that says just because I find everything hilarious doesn't mean I'm not taking you seriously. Well, those are those are all your little nuts. Right, my little nutshells that my clients exactly. call them. Yeah, it's like the, I have a I have a uh, uh, my wife calls me a t-shirt author. She she said you should you should write just lines for t-shirts. So I think that's my aspiration. I think it's a great thing. That's one of the things you ha- you have a newsletter as well. That is your nutshell wisdom mm-hmm. that we should tell um, our guests about because yeah, that you always have a lot of humor in your your newsletters. But you had um, sent me something that I really got a chuckle about, and that was the conversation with a non non believer. I don't uh-huh. believe in therapy. <laughs> And, you know, I mean, I think that just shows how you have a sense of humor and how somebody at the, you know, by the time you were finished, I'm not sure that he even understood what he was talking about. Right. It's, it's, it's written sort of in, 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 uh, in honor of Abbott and Costello, who's on first kind of thing. Exactly. There's that a, was exactly there's a strange kind of, But everybody's heard, certainly everybody in this business I'm in has heard somebody say, I don't believe in therapy. And I, my, my response is always, do you mean you don't believe in therapy like you don't believe in Santa Claus? You know, you don't believe therapy exists. And then, the, you know, the conversation ensues. And I always tell people, anybody who wants a copy of that, which I think is just is, is just for fun. Is can always just email me. They can always go through my website and email me and just tell me they want that uh, article, and I'll be glad to send it to them. This article that we're talking about is called "Conversation with a Non-Believer," and if you uh, go to um, Tom's website, which is www.tomrutledge.com, that's spelled T H O M. That's how you spell the Tom. R-U-T-L-E-D-G-E dot com. He can send that to you. But it is it is very much like who's on first, and it's very funny. And it just gives you a good chuckle, and I think it's a good foundation for, you know, what you're talking about in Embracing Fear. Well, um, speaking of the Embracing Fear, I loved it that you were kind of a master at uh, cards. And so you like doing card magic. Right. And that really does resonate, I think, with people because there isn't anything magic about healing from our fears. Right. We talk about facing the fear, exploring the fear, accepting the fear, and responding to the fear. Let's go through those so that we can get an awareness of how we can embrace our fear and make it our greatest gift. Okay, good. I mean, the first thing, first things first. I mean, the, the obviously what we're asking people to do with this with this method is do what really feels counterintuitive, which is to turn around and go toward what we want to run away from. But uh, the, one of the little nutshell lines we have says 
says, uh, always move towards your demons because they take their power from your retreat. And, and, and meaning that to run away only empowers that fear more. So the first of, uh, first part of that acronym is just turn and face the fear. Go face it directly and, and, uh, and, you know, and know that it's okay to be afraid. That's one of the most important things. I want people to know the goal here is to not become someone who doesn't feel fear. Well, I think you're giving people permission, and that's the key, is because so many books and so many self-help gurus are like, you know, get over it, move on, (laughs) you know, don't feel it. Well, see, I I can't do that, Cynthia, because, because, you know, I'm too crazy. It's like, you know, (laughs) unless I feel like I'm over everything, I couldn't possibly tell everybody to get over it. And and I kind of have a a pet peeve about that, that the the people out there who, who who are saying, you know, long ago when I had problems like you, I tend not to trust those people, you know. It's like, um, you know, I, I like to think that I've done a lot of work and I've and I've had a lot of reward for that, and I feel like I'm a I'm a f- well functioning, healthy healthy man today because of what I've done. But I would never say that I'm not also just a, a regular human being dealing with my own neurosis on a daily basis. You know, that's what we're that's that's being human. Well, you know, you talk about your own uh, challenges and how you had to face your fears and how you worked through it, and you know, one of them was alcoholism and people will say I can't ever have a drink and you don't say that at all well, what, what, what I say, what I say is, I won't take a drink. Is, is, I can, is, you know, I can, but I don't that's right. Drink. When I hear an alcoholic say, "I, I, I, I can't drink because I'm an alcoholic," I, I say, "Well, I'm an alcoholic, and the problem is, I can drink, and boy, can I drink!" And uh, so, yeah, what, what I always, and I just finished working with a client earlier today about this same thing. The, the idea is. Feel how much more powerful it is, whatever it is. It doesn't have to be alcoholism. It could be uh, buying into to negative, self-critical thinking. Instead of saying, I can't afford to, to listen to this anymore, say, I won't listen to this anymore. I won't buy into it anymore. It's a, it, it's, a, it's a matter of choice, and it really feels good. You can really feel it in your body. I won't do it, meaning I'm refusing to do that. It's like what I've basically done for 21 years now is I've refused to have another drink because I believe that to do so would basically destroy my life, my you know, my marriage, my career, everything else. And it's like because of that, I live in freedom from my alcoholism. And what that did is that empowered you, that yes. choice, and to know that we always have a choice. Right. So let's talk about this acronym, uh, acronym for fear. It's F-E-A-R. So the first one is to face your fear, and remember the nutshell, that if you run from it, you are actually giving more strength more to your demons. More power to it. That's right. And the, and the second is about acceptance, and this is one that's misunderstood very often, is that people are afraid that if they accept something, they're, they're agreeing that it's a good idea, or they're agreeing with what it's saying. Acceptance is just that. It just says, this is it's like in the serenity prayer, accept the things I cannot change. If there's something there that cannot be changed, you accept it. And, and you know, there are a lot of things we can change, but one of the things we do not change is human beings is that we experience fear and we're going to and there's and you said about permission there's we need to give each other that permission we need to give each other that validation that says it's okay to have that so we can get over you know having to fight with whether or not we should have it so that you can that's the a the accept and then the e is explore which which is you know in a lot of ways pretty traditional in terms of psychotherapy kind of understanding where it came from a lot of times we end up talking about families we come from and how we learned you know to be afraid of the things we're afraid of but all of it leads to the r which is respond and and everything 
about, you know, my work is about teaching people that you don't have to be rid of fear, but what you have to do is learn how to respond to it differently. And, you know, it's responsibility. The, the, literally speaking, the ability to respond is what changes. Well, you know, that's like everything in life, Tom. It's not how uh, what, what happens to us. It's how we respond to what happened to us. Right. That's, that's the definition of a non-victim. That's, that's exactly what I, I teach is the idea that, that a victim is somebody who believes that how you're doing is determined by what happens. And, and the, those that are, we're, when we're living a non-victim life, what we're doing is saying it's not what happens, it's how I respond. I mean, we can just look at wonderful role models in our day-to-day life or we can look at public role models that we've had like uh, Christopher Reeve or Michael J. Fox, these people who are great role models for saying, you know, just because this happened doesn't mean I'm not going to not only survive it, but I'm going to actually, you know, benefit from it. It's going to become a gift. And and I'm going to help so many other people. Well, I always like to say there are no victims, just volunteers. That's right. I, there's, a, there's a guy, uh, uh, his name is, I'll do a plug for him, he uh, wrote a book back in the 80s called Lost in the Shuffle. His name is Robert Subby, and he has a wonderful line in there that I always remember. He says as, as, when we're talking about our childhood he, and, our, and, and growing up into our own dysfunction, he says as children we're victims. And as adults, we're volunteers. Yes, and you actually mentioned that in your book, which made me think of it, is because, you know, I, I, I think that's a real truism. As children, yes, we really don't volunteer to be victimized. We don't have choices, yeah. We don't have as many choices because we do have a, adults in, in charge of us who can do bad things. Mm-hmm. But as adults, we really do have a choice, and that is what makes us a volunteer. And it's just so critical that we don't allow ourselves to have that victim, you know, mentality. Right. Well, and one of the things I hope that my book, I hope that when I'm doing a presentation, whatever it is I'm doing, I hope I'm also putting across there is for us just to say that, you know, it makes it sound easy. It's like, but it's in AA there's a little slogan that says it's simple but not easy. I want people to know that this is a simple thing we're talking about, about changing your response. But the other thing is it, it's hard. It's, it's hard work, and it's not something you just wish for and it makes it so. So part of what I hope my book does, for instance, is give people a lot of tangible help to, to actually learn how to do this because it doesn't just come because you think it's a good idea. No, it doesn't. And, you know, I'm always very skeptical of people who say, hey, you know, you're only on your path if the living is easy. I feel that life is difficult. We're going to have a lot of challenges, and we have to respond to those, jump over them, fly through them, whatever it is. But, you know, if it is too easy, then we may not be doing the work we, that we We do. may be missing the point. Well, I, I'm, with, think, I'm with you on that. Well, you had some great stories in your book. Now, the book, again, is called Embracing Fear, How to Turn What Scares Us into Our Greatest Gift, and the author is Tom Rutledge, R-U-T-L-E-D-G-E. And I wanted to get to the story about you and your wife uh, when the you were the electricity was out, all the power was out, and yeah. here you were, and you were chopping wood. And you said you had never felt, even though it was a whole week of really hard labor and having to break the ice that was so you could give the animals water, you know, you had never really felt more in tune and more relaxed and more connected. It, it was like it was like traveling. It was it was a, a, I live in Nashville, Tennessee. It was quite an extreme storm for here, but but and we live on a farm with horses and and goats and all these various things. And and we get along great, Tom, because I'm on a farm too, and oh, I love all that. God, I mean, I, I pretty much married Ellie Mae Clampett. You know, yeah, I think yeah. it, oh, it, did you? that may be you. <laughs> it is. That's what my husband calls. Is me. that right? Well, we may we may be best friends then, but it's, but that that experience 
was so powerful for me because it was like traveling back in time and realizing that because I was literally chopping wood and carrying water and because I was just taking care of business every single day and taking care of these basic things is what I found was, is I didn't have all that chatter in my head, all that neurotic chatter that's always telling me, oh, you're supposed to do this, make a list about this, do this, do this, do this, because everything was just, and I don't want to live that way. Obviously, I love my modern conveniences. I love to be able to be on the radio with you across, you know, all this distance, but it was such a wonderful experience to just have that simplistic thing and realize that's who we are underneath all of this. Well, you know, I think sometimes we just need to be, you know, be, be in the moment. And just by uh, experiencing that quiet time, that solitude, and really doing the basic things that are elemental to living and staying alive and helping our animals, et cetera, it gives us more a sense of power and a sense of ourselves. And I bet you that you had no fear at all during that whole time. I don't think I thought about fear. I think I think I just, you just you just did what what was what was in front of you. It's like so I didn't have that extra uh, that extra voice that you know we call it in the book. We call it the bully voice, the one that's always chattering and telling us all the things that could possibly go wrong. It's like I, I didn't hear from that voice during that time because it was because my life was in that moment that it was it was it was like it was as good a seminar as I'd ever been to, and it was just the idea of an experiential seminar of being fully present in the moment. Get the chores done. Get to the fire. Uh, our golden retriever was extremely popular because he was very warm. I know. I, I love that. I thought that when you said that, I thought, oh, that is so cute. I know that you're probably, like, you're all cuddling up to the dog. Oh, we, all, we all went to Dakota. It's like, it's like everybody, even the cats. Oh, that is, that is really something. But, you know, what a great experience that was because it's something you can share not only with your readers but with your clients as well. Right. Maybe they just need to stop sometimes just stop right. take a pause and that's and that's easier said than done and it's it's like it's like it, but it's something worth it's worth our efforts that's right well one of the things you also talk about in your book embracing fear is that you have you don't know who you know you feel like sometimes somebody's writing writing with you or right. with you whether you're channeling something or you've mm-hmm. got a spirit guide you know i believe that who knows what it is but i do think that we we are directed in some way shape or form and that is maybe what gives you this wonderful ability to help others heal themselves. I, I, I think so, Cynthia. It's like, it, you know, some people hear that in different ways, and I don't mean it in any kind of namby-pamby, new-age way, but there's always, whether it be about, you know, when I was a magician, like you said, doing card tricks or entertaining people, or whether it be when I'm sitting with a client or when I'm doing a workshop or writing a book, there is some there is something beyond me that works through me and it, and it, and I I'm like you I don't know what it is but I'm, I'm I respect it tremendously and you know and I don't mean it as false modesty like I don't have something to do with it because I obviously do and it's like and I've worked hard to to become good at what I do but there is something there is something more and uh and and to me it's it's just pretty awesome I'm getting ready to do a, wor- a weekend workshop we do these all the time here in Nashville and and uh there's those workshops when you bring 20 people together for a weekend there's just something magical that happens isn't that exciting when people get together and their energy just blends the whole is greater than the sum of the parts i it, mean that's that's what, what you experience great, yeah now there's a great nutshell too you know <laughs> that was not mine though <laughs> i know it's not but you could probably reword it because you have a, a lot of those and i like the way that you i think they should be t-shirts i want to give out your website again because people can get involved in tom's seminars his workshops 
buy his books. And if you're in um, the area and you need a really great psychotherapist or somebody just to humor you, you can see and hear how terrific Tom is. He's also a speaker and is available for speaking um, uh, events all over the country. You go to www.tomrutledge.com. That's spelled T H O M R U. T-L-E-D-G-E. And the name of the book we're talking about today is Embracing Fear, How to Turn What Scares Us into Our Greatest Gift. You have totally turned your fears into gifts. I, I hope, I think so, yeah. And it's an ongoing process. Well, you know, isn't life like that? I mean, we just keep going. We put one foot in, in front of the other. But with, I think, your acronym, I, with, I think with your four uh, pieces of information, face the fear, explore the fear, accept the fear, and respond to the fear, it gives a framework for people to work in. I hope so. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for being a guest on Thank, thank you, Cynthia. You are. And say hello to all your animals and your Ellie Mae Clampett. I, I will. Her without even knowing her. I, I will do it. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening. That was Tom Rutledge. His book is Embracing Fear, How to Turn What Scares Us into Our Greatest Gift. TomRutledge.com. I'm Cynthia Bryan, your personal growth coach here on Star Style. Be the star you are. It's T42 time coming right up with the beautiful Heather Hi, I'm Morgan Freeman. America's national park system is one of the best ideas our country ever had. And I've got a lifetime of memories to prove it. But our parks are in trouble. Inadequate funding and other pressures are risking some of America's most awe-inspiring places. To help, visit www.americansfornationalparks.org or call 1-800-NATPARK. 1-800-NAT-PARK. There's just too much to lose. Business Bites. Here's Cynthia Bryan. Do you know how to make more productive phone calls? In today's busy world, phone tag has become the norm. But how can you get more mileage from your phone time and reduce the extended games of telephone tag? First, call when people are more likely to be in. Good times are usually Tuesdays, Wednesdays, or Thursdays. Bad times, definitely Monday mornings and Friday afternoons. Whenever the person you're trying to reach isn't in, ask the secretary or whoever answers when would be a good time to call back. Develop an alternative contact in the organization that you might be able to reach. Be friendly with secretaries. They are the gatekeepers to the kingdom. And if you're kept on hold more than a couple of minutes, hang up and telephone another time. Holding for long periods wastes time and indicates a lack of interest. Leave excellent voicemail messages and know when to quit. Sometimes the other party is just not interested in your message, so it's time to fold them. Remember, you're the star of your own performance. Turn your passions into profits. I'm Cynthia Bryan from Star Style with another business bite. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Star Style, be the star you are. I'm your personal growth coach, Cynthia Bryan, and with me is my wonderful daughter, Heather Brittany. Hello, hello. Well, and this is our T42, a mother-daughter brew segment. We are the Stella Donna Goddess Gals, 
And we're going to be talking about the impact that AIDS has on women today. But before I start, I just want to announce the exciting seminars that I'm going to be doing. Coming up shortly, uh, one is a Dream It, Do It series of online classes at emindful.com. It's a webcam, so you're going to be able to see me and hear me and interact. Go to emindful.com to register. Also, I will be speaking a full week in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, Arts for the Soul Retreat. Go to artsforthesoul.net. And uh, I announced it last week. I'm also going to be speaking at the number one destination spa in England, Grayshot Manor, which is Grayshot Spa. Dot com And maybe you'll come and spa with me. That would be really fun. Uh, everything that I've got coming up, and there's lots more, is at CynthiaBryan.com. So I hope to see you in person or online at, at any of these. So come and see us. Well, as all of you wonderful listeners know, Heather Brittany is a women's study and communications major at San Diego State University. And every week in our T42 segment, she addresses an issue that is really important to women, and today we're talking women's health, as specifically about the em- epidemic of AIDS and how women have been affected. The statistics are absolutely startling. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, first I want to say that AIDS is an epidemic for the whole human race, not just women. But surprisingly, in the last 10 years, we've gone up about 10%. In 1992, women accounted for 14% of the AIDS epidemic. Now it's 23%. It's just astonishing. And today women account for more than one quarter of all new HIV diagnosis. And unfortunately, the more it gets into poverty levels and minorities, it keeps increasing. It's the Heather, I want you to repeat that. Did you say that women are accounting for one-fourth? Exactly. It's 25% of all 25% new cases. 25% of all new cases? Exactly. For, and especially for um, women account for 26% of the 37,000 diagnosed every year. And it's just astonishing that, you know, with now you think the new preventions out there, what's it causing? Um, the biggest part, too, is it's not just in the United States. In the United States, we've had, we have these new things that they're, they're called cocktails, which is a combination of various pills you have to take. And it used to be that you'd have to take up to 23 pills a day and you couldn't mix this pill with that pill or you had to eat one, you had to have one pill on a full stomach and one on an empty stomach. And maintaining yourself, you know, just taking these pills was a pretty much a task. And also as well as we said that why it affects minorities and poverty levels as these pills are astonishing. They could be as much as $30,000 a month. And most Other people pay uh, for that, Heather. And are there programs well, that help with pain? Well, slowly there's programs getting out there that, you know, more, there's becoming more advocates that are making generic forms of the drug for it. And they've actually been able to level it down where some people that, you know, you only have to take one to four pills a day, which still may sound uh, kind of like a hassle having to take so many pills and if you miss a certain pill, what it can do to your body and the reaction these pills have. But it's just awesome that they don't have to take as much as they. And there's certain government programs that are beginning to assist with it and certain insurance companies. Um, usually the higher paid up you are, the further you are into a company, you're able to afford and you're offered a better incentives for the insurance. But something that's so sad that it's the third leading cause of death for black women and uh, the fourth leading cause for Hispanic women. Is that the third leading cause of death? And third leading cause of death. And as we know, really? heart disease. 
heart disease is the number one uh, killer for all women. Yes, we're, um, we're going to do a show on heart disease because exactly that is heart, number one. Heart healthy. And most, um, what's something that's astonishing too is AIDS used to be thought of as just a homosexual disease and especially just in the male gay community. But most HIV women are infected with HIV through heterosexual sex. And as we spoke before, is that women are more susceptible to any diseases. As I always try to break it down um, when when, uh, discussing STD things, is that if you saw a a piece of food on the ground, you know, would it be safer for you to put it in your hand or put it in your mouth? And how genitalia works in male and female proportions is that a male would be just in the hand. Is that you know there is somewhat a chance of you know, picking up bacteria, but literally putting it in your mouth is putting a high risk for that. And that's why all women are more susceptible to it. And something that, why is it so difficult for women to be protecting themselves is one of the biggest things that we discuss is in third world, third world countries, especially in Africa, feminism, feminism has been discussed so highly um, for the last decades in the West, but many parts of the world, especially areas such as Africa, it's not in existence. It isn't discussed. So women... And men of all aspects are living at unequal things. There's very high patriarchal societies and governments, and women fall prey to this. And another thing um, that, as in Africa, they have this whole thing that by having sex with a virgin will cure AIDS or freeze the disease. But of course, you know that's with not children, true. And they always said with children and babies. Exactly, and instead it ends up infecting these young women. And another thing, too, uh, kind of how our patriarchal societies work, is there's less of a stigma. If a woman cheats, it's considered, and in some countries it's almost, it's prosecuted by death, um, adultery. But men, it's almost considered a, a practice use. So something that they found that's very fascinating is that many women, that their husband may have been their first and only uh, sexual partner and they're loyal to their husband. Their husbands are going out and going to prostitutes. Many people, the, the transit areas, uh, many truck drivers, it's just accepted there. And so these men come home and then they infect their wives with it. And unfortunately, that's just part of the accepted thing is that the male is the leader in the family, the male is the provider. And it's put finally upon that if the woman contracted it, that somehow... She must have cheated, though it's very low known that she has not. Right, right. And also I think in, in some of the third world countries, uh, whereas the female is, is uh, being monogamous, the male is not being monogamous, not only with other women, but also in homosexual relationships, which many times they don't even look at as homosexual. They'll just look at as you know, some kind of fun activity. And so they are, the men are getting infected and then bringing it home to their wives, but then the person that takes the blame is the wife. Exactly. And also another thing, surprisingly, because as we know, it's uh, it's caused through liquid, and it can come from breast milk, uh, obviously uh, saliva, and um, vaginal fluids is how it's uh, transforming people. But something that's really surprising is one in five new HIV diagnoses among women is through injection drug use. And that's the big thing that we discussed, that it's really big in the poverty levels uh, and, and minorities. And so one thing they're trying to crack, uh, crack down on is that they actually offer, some people are opposed it because they feel that it's supporting drug use. But in many areas, they have a safe, clean needle dropout where people, uh, drug users can come in and bring, most times these people are homeless, uh, low income. They can come in and exchange needles. There's no, they don't have the fear, you know, being arrested for 
blatantly admitting that they're using these drugs by coming to these places. So it's kind of like a safe haven. And though in one sense it's saying, you know, supporting, you know, why aren't there programs just to get these people off drugs? Uh, but unfortunately, you know, these people have the addiction and that they might not have the money or the ability to get into rehab. So at least it's, though, it's supporting their, it's not ending their drug use, it's supporting the spread or possibly the creation of HIV. But, you know, also the whole idea with the drug, uh, drug use is that people who are using drugs are not thinking either. When they're on a high, the, all they can think about is the next high. And they really don't care what needle that they use. So the fact that whether we, you know, whether we think that they should be in programs, that's another matter. But if we can give them clean needles so they're not sharing needles, at least they won't be spreading HIV. And the biggest thing is, you know, the prevention is out there. From This first became really aware to the public in the 1980s about AIDS. And first, you know, it was called BIRDS. It was in the gay man epidemic. And slowly when people were realizing that women were contracting. And before, you know, the symptoms, people didn't know what it was. And now it's very, we have it straight and blatantly laid out. And now no longer as well, HIV is not a, is not a death sentence, nor is AIDS. If people are able to get this medication, they can survive. They can their life expectancy can go from where it used to be a few months to a year to you know 50 years from now. And these people are able to have kids without passing it on to them. There's so many things out there. And the biggest thing is that there needs to be in the schools about safe sex awareness. The big thing is out there that. Some schools are only pushing abstinence only. But oddly enough, uh, which our current president, President Bush, he's, his view towards, uh, you know, sex education in school is the abstinence only, you know, people wait till marriage. But oddly it's enough. It's not going to work. Yeah, oddly enough, the city he used to, or the, the, the area he used to govern or state over, uh, has the highest rate for high school pregnancies. Uh, which some and and for STD things because another thing people think that if they won't have actual sex and they'll engage in oral sex or other forms of it and that just as easily spread that won't spread AIDS but it easily forms other forms of STDs which are lifelong um, situations. So the big thing to get out there is to get the knowledge um, to always you know to help people about safe sex about monogamy same thing about drug usage and also not to fear that to always have that open question to ask your partner that sex I know it's the the uncomfortable question, but you should be adult enough to ask people their sexual past and ask them if they've gotten tested, these things, if you're willing to put your life on the line for, you know, the amount of time for pleasure, because it could be a lifelong situation. Well, also, too, is when you sleep with someone, uh, you Everyone sleep with every single with partner support. that they've ever had, and it's not that you have to interrogate them and say, give me a list. But you do need to know, you know, uh, how frequent and when was the last and if they're drug users. I mean, you do have to be diligent for days. High-risk behavior. A big thing, uh, you know, especially with college students, is you know, many kids, once they get to college and they're finally, you know, engaged sexually experimenting. And sometimes, you know, afterwards someone may have been wild in college and once, you know, they're out, they're ready to start their life, settle down with one person. But their prior actions, though they might be monogamous with one person now, their prior actions might affect them in that. So it's always it's always just responsible for yourself and for your partner to get tested, to find out everything, just to know so that you both can have a safe and happy life together. Yes, and to use uh, to use condoms and to use you know caution, use safe sex, no matter 
you know, where or when. I like that. Condoms and caution. Condoms and caution. I like that. That's a good thing. And, you know, I wanted to bring up one other point, too, especially in Africa, because uh, about a year ago we had an author of a book on it. She does work in Africa, and what she had found is that there were whole towns and cities that were literally the parents had both died from AIDS, and there were only children left. And, unfortunately, the children were considered pariahs because many of them had AIDS. And so there were kids ruling kids. And so this is something that it perpetuates, and we really have to get a handle on it and now. And that's the really big thing with the kids is it used to be such a fear before of, you know, if a woman had HIV or AIDS and she was giving birth and she was pregnant and she was going to pass it on to the child. And now, you know, they've found ways they, they can do cesarean so that it, they won't happen with the blood or vaginal fluid. The biggest thing, though, that people are unaware of is that it's spread through breast milk. So in the United States, it's very known. These people have ways, you know, they, they're given state funding so that they're able to buy the formula, to say, you know, breast milk formula. But unfortunately, in in Africa, uh, though, even if they have access to formula, they don't have access to clean water. So if they're not giving their child their child AIDS through the breast milk, they could have dysentery. Uh, they'll maybe give their child, you know, possibly malaria or something, or something else that will kill their child. So something else. kind of like they have to choose one or the two. What are they going to do to their child? Well, that is really fascinating. So get more information about AIDS in general and just be aware that women is the fastest growing uh, sector. And I just wanted to make a comment, too, because both you and I both got these emails today uh, just about the scams that are going on on the Internet, where both Heather and I received an email that a fan wanted an autograph. Um, and this was somebody writing to us from Germany, but it's very, it was, it's obvious that what they're looking for is an identity theft ring. So I just wanted to warn listeners out there. If you're to get your fan mail, surprisingly, don't respond. Don't respond. Uh, probably they've got all kinds of other information, and they're going to take the rest of your identity. Well, Heather, great segment. Go off to Washington. Have a wonderful time. Thank you all for being great listeners. Thanks to our wonderful engineer, Jeff, and thanks for allowing us into your life every year, every year, every week. Year. You're listening here to Cynthia Bryan. And I'm Heather Brittany. Every week, we're your personal growth success experts. Visit BeTheStarYouAre.org for more information about the charity. And Heather, just give them the website. Most definitely. We want to check it out. Help everything with the charity, with the website, with the radio show. Go to Stelladon.com. Show the whole Okay, till next week. Be the star you are. Thanks for joining us. Thanks.